So Romans, part 17. We're moving along a little bit, right? So we're going to start at verse 11. Romans 1 through 10, chapter 6, just to kind of get us back to thinking about it. So, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 10, and then we'll pick up with, at verse 11. 6 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. <clears throat> death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, so any thoughts so of that? Do we get the basic premise that Paul's trying to reach out there? You know, he's really telling us that you are not a slave to sin anymore. You're dead to sin. You were di you died to sin. Your old self, your pagan old self died to sin. It was it was crucified, it was buried, and it rose and then you rose again into a new life. And so you don't have to be under the bondage of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death has occurred in for the sin in your life. And so Paul is telling his audience, his readers, and by extension us, that that's what you need to be thinking about. That's what you need to be pondering on, is that position, that new position you have. And with that new position, you're going to want to do good things. You want to live up to that position. So you've been granted this position, but you live way down here. The goal is just to live up to the position that you've been given by grace, right? So verse 11, what does he tell us to do? So if someone would read verse 11. So as believers, we consider that Christ, the gospel, right? That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and then rose again according to the scriptures, right? So you also... The same belief that you have that Christ did those things for you, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, right? That's what Paul's saying. The belief that got you justified is the same belief that gets you sanctified, right? If, if you believe that Christ died for your sins, was buried and then resurrected, therefore God accepting the sacrifice, and therefore you're justified, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin in the same way, right? That you're now alive to God. It wasn't just what he did. It's what happened to you as a result of what he did. And that's that, that you died to sin. It's the same faith that you believed in him doing the work. The same faith is that the work that he did also did that to you, right? It's not that you did the work 
or that you have anything special. It's just that he did more than just die on the cross. He took you with him, right? In the sense that, that you are dead to sin and no longer has a reigning authority power over you, right? So that's what Paul is saying, that we are to have this continuous attitude of faith, not, not a feeling, right? But a faith, being logically convinced of those things, that we have indeed died to sin. Who are we to say what God has declared? We undeclare, right? If God has declared you justified, and God has declared you dead to sin and alive to him, really, who are you to say otherwise, right? The only thing you do is just say no. You reject it, but it doesn't change the fact that it is. So why would you do that? That's kind of what Paul is saying. Why don't you know that you are dead to sin? Don't you know you've been made alive? That's the mentality we need to have, right? Um, we need to continually remember that that sin nature inherited by Adam, which causes us to do individual sins, is no longer reigning over us as king, no longer has authority over us. Um, we're to believe that what is true of Christ is true of us because of the union with him, right? That union we have, and, you know, they call it the bride of Christ, the church, they call all these things. That's the union that we have. What is true of Christ is also true of us because of our union. When Christ died, right, we died. When he resurrected, we resurrected, right? So when sin comes knocking which it will, because you still have sin in your heart, in your body, in, in the sense that you're no longer a slave to it, but you're still in this side of glorification. Um, you have to remind ourselves and recognize that we are dead to it and it has no authority and that we are alive to God, alive to God. So now we are acceptable to God. Paul makes that similar point in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. So that term in Christ we've talked about before is a technical term. It's literally a position, a legal position. You are no longer under God's wrath. You are now in Christ, right? And you have the union with Christ. Therefore, you are acceptable to God. Isn't that extraordinarily profound right that what is true of Christ is automatically true of you right that's a that should give you joy right should give you peace should give you hope it should give you just consistent satisfaction of the situation that you might ever be in even though the situations might not be fun or trials or whatever we know that the trials are producing in you good things all we said that before that you know um, God is causing in your life troubles, trials, tribulations for the purpose of sanctifying you. Trials and tribulations and sufferings are there for a reason. God is doing, he's refining you that way. That's why Paul and James both say, rejoice in your sufferings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various trials. It's, that's, that's the way we ought to look at trials and, and tribulations is with this process of sanctification. We're here. God's intention is to get us there. And, and I said also in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, and this is the will of God. If you ever want to know the will of God for your life, it says, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
And so no matter where you are, no matter what job, no matter what missionary, no matter full-time, part-time ministry or not, God's will for your life is the same, the sanctification process. So that's our purpose, that's our motivation, that's our inspiration now on this part of, of eternity is to be sanctified, to be more like him. Um, okay. Okay, so verses 1 through 10 spells out that theological truth, right? That we're dead to sin, alive to God. Verse tells us, therefore, we ought to constantly consider that, be reminding ourselves of that position. And we ought to act as though it's true, because it is, right? Oftentimes, don't wait for the feeling. Don't wait for, uh, you know, this, this moment of emotional uh, inspiration. Just tell yourself that it is true, because it is true. Generally, feelings follow the facts, right? We try to say facts follow feelings. Fe your feeling will follow if you keep acting that way. Your feelings will eventually catch up to the what is true, if you believe that, right? It's mind over feelings in a sense, right? So verses 12 through 4, um, it's going to tell us now how that theological principle constantly considering that theological principle, and then 12 through 14 are going to show us how to apply that in our life. So there's a practical command as to what to do in your life, and that's in verse 12. So if someone would read verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay, so in light of God's grace, right, making you alive to him and dead to sin, we're not to let sin rule as king in our mortal body. So we do have some authority over that because we cannot let it do it, right? We can let it do it. We can choose to let it do it. We can choose not to let it do it. So this yielding is not a once and for all. Hi, Kathy. It's not a once and that's it. You have to continually yield to it, right? <clears throat> we're, 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 we're urged to not yield to that sin nature which we had a habit of following and a habit of, of being a part of. We couldn't actually escape it without being dead to sin. Because um, the natural pull, the natural pull of us, even as believers, is to go back to what we were, the sin nature, right? But it doesn't have that authority over us, so we don't have to. So we're not to continuously obey the lusts of the body or the lusts of the flesh or the pride of the life. Rather, our union with Christ should lead us to continually yield in obedience, right? And that our faith in Christ should lead us to continue to do good works. That's what Paul is saying. And then verse 13 gives us more details. So if um, someone read verse 13. Okay, so we're not to let our bodies be used for unrighteousness. Don't let the tools of the sin nature use us, right? Um, if we yield to that sin nature, then the sin nature begins to rule over us again. We talked last time about how you've been set free from the prison of sin, but you put yourself back through the door, right? The door's not locked, the door's open, but you feel comfortable because that's what you know to go back and sit inside the prison, right? That's, that's kind of the way you can view it that way. 
where no one is keeping you there. There's no guard. There's no guard to prevent you from getting out. You've been set free. You've been released. And yet you continue to go back in there and put yourself in there, right? We do. So the verb present, right, it's a present tense, right? It means that we are to continually present our bodies for that, right? Decisively to the new nature uh, and to God for his use, right? So we are continually presenting our bodies to him because of our position. We're trying to just live up to that position. So we present our bodies as that saying, Lord, let me access your grace, your tools, your Holy Spirit to help me not live in the sin nature, but live in my new nature. So we are to act and then live accordingly. So Paul is urging us to continuously fight against subjecting our bodies to the sin nature. It's an ongoing battle, right? We, there, but we have to have that mentality that there is a war waging within us and for us and on us, right? It's really a, a, a spiritual battle. So when you make that commitment to, to put your faith in Christ for salvation, um, and justification, we make that commitment to say, present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice for his use alone, right? So our attitude should reflect that, that um, we want to be alive to God and that we are new and that we have a resurrected life in Christ. Um, that continually consideration is what will, will allow us to overcome our old sin nature and our old self and we realize our newness of body and newness of mind and newness of life. Paul will go over this a little more also in chapter 12, um, but he continues in verse 14. So he makes an explanation and a promise in verse 14. So someone read verse 14 if you would. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Right, so that's, that's the promise, right? Sin does not have to exercise any authority over us, because we're not under that. There's no, there's no uh, sentinel watching the gate, right? It's unlocked. The keys have been locked. There's nobody there to put you there but yourself. So the, the principle of law, as we learn, puts man into slavery to sin. It just awakens the idea, oh, oh, I am a sinner, right? The principle of law is that there is such thing as right or wrong, good and bad, true or false. All that does is shed light on the reality of what sin is and what God's grace is. Um, and that puts you into prison, awareness of, of the I guess it should say, it makes you aware of the prison that you were in. You may not even have known that you were in prison because the law, you were received uh, imputation of sin from Adam. You're in prison, but you're not even aware of it until you read the law. The law tells you, oh, I am in prison. I, I'm, I'm in prison because I am one of those. I fall into that, right? Okay, so the principle of grace, however, gives us desire and the power to live a holy life. So this, this understanding right, that, you are, that sin has no dominion over you and you're not under law but under grace, that sets the stage for the next several verses, 15 through 23. So that's the new principle of sanctification, that we're slaves to righteousness. No longer are we slaves to sin, we are slaves to righteousness. You're basically one or the other. There's no neutral ground. You're either following the, the sin nature or you're following the, the righteousness nature. So in light of that fact that we're under grace and not under law, a new question Paul asks is in verse 15a. So read verse 15a. 
What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Under grace, right? So it's, he, you, they all, kind of the question Paul asked kind of all sound a little similar, right? But just in a little bit different angle. Um, it's just slightly different from the one that was asked in verse 1. And of course, the answer to this question is, God forbid, by no means, may it never be, right? This very strong, decisive contrast to that idea. Um, if we, so the essence of it is basically, if we cannot habitually sin because of our sin nature was crucified, can we at least commit individual acts of sin, minor sins, white lies, or whatever we might want to call them, right? Since we're not under a law with this condemnation of sin, is it permissible to sin occasionally? And then Paul answers the question in 15b, again, by no means, right? By no means. Then he provides the answer. So read verse 16, if you would. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Okay, so we're no longer slaves of sin. We've been, this new position makes us slaves to righteousness. And maybe slave is a weird term to understand that, but that's the reality, right? Because the principle is that we are slaves to whomever we choose to obey, right? If we choose to obey the sin nature, then we are slaves to sin. If we choose to obey the newness of life that we have, the sanctification, then we are slaves to righteousness. But we are free to choose whom we want, right? And whoever we choose is who we are slaves to. So if we continue serving sin, we will once again be slaves to that from which we've been freed. If, on the other hand, we serve righteousness, then we become slaves to righteousness. So we really only have two options, and we can either choose to sin or choose to follow and obey under righteousness. So it kind of reminds me of the, the parable of, of Matthew 13. Pastor was just going over that, about how there's fruit, there's, fruit, there's seeds that are thrown, and some... The fourth one is that there's massive fruit, right? And then there's some that the cares of the world choke up their choke up their things. And then the other one's the same thing. They they weren't deeply rooted, right? It never took hold. And it's the same idea. You are justified and saved, but do you go back to the sin nature? Do you go back to obeying? And that's what it says. The cares of the world, and you, you don't have any depth to you. You go back to being a slave. You put yourself right back in that prison cell, and so you never produce the fruit. Whereas the one who does produce fruit is in that continually consideration of the new position, and the fruit that occurs is a result of you living as a slave to righteousness versus a slave to sin. I would say that they are all saved. There's only one group when it you know it never takes hold. They're unsaved, but then the three of the four are saved it's just that fruits are different right um, I, I just yeah clarification he um paul is here talking to believers right? yes that this is not the separation between non-believers correct okay. right absolutely right i mean I, um, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to its purpose right um only good things come to those who are called according to his purpose. Ultimately, if you're an unbeliever, all things will come to the bad for you, 
right? All, all the difficulties, trials, tribulations. If you reject the Christ as your Messiah, you're ultimately going to be bad. In a sense, you're going to be thrown in the lake of fire, right? But all things will work together for you who are called according to his purpose, right? Because it's going to ultimately end in your glorified state. So there's a huge difference between that. Okay, so verse 17. Someone read verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves, you sent to be sold unto the obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Okay, so all people are slaves of sin. All people, unbelievers, unless they accept the gospel message and are saved. At that, they, at that moment that they believe they are delivered from sin, Right? Sin has, is rendered inoperative in their lives. Um, and it says, from the heart, right? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart, meaning inwardly and genuinely you believed by faith, and that's what saved you. And the content of what you believed is the teaching to which you've committed to, the teaching of well, the gospel message that Paul or the other, other apostles or other disciples had shared with you to believe, right? Verse 18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Okay, so we've been set free. We've been released, right? That through Christ, Christ we've been freed from the slavery of sin. That should continually reproduce itself in our life, right? That understanding. The freedom from sin can reproduce itself in your daily life. So we can be a slave of righteousness on a daily basis, set free from the authority of sin. And then now Paul is going to give us an illustration in verse 19. So if you read verse 19. Okay, so he's using this human term, you know, he says he's speaking in human terms, which is on our level, basically, right? <laughs> um, he's using an illustration from a natural realm because of his audience and us too. If this, is, if this is new doctrine to you, to us as a believer, then we are in this, we need the human terms to understand this, basically. Because it is, like I said, we don't often get told those things that just as Christ died, you died, just as Christ resurrected, you resurrected, you ought to consider yourselves the same resurrected newness of life that Christ had, you have, right? So he's making sure, remember the whole premise of the book of Romans was given to the audience or to the readers of Romans because they never had an apostle establish them, right? So he wanted to make sure that they were well established in the doctrine of godly things, of the principles of, of theology, right? So that's what he's doing here. Um, so the illustration is simple enough. When we were unsaved, we presented our bodies to, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, but the result was more lawlessness. It reproduced itself, right? However, as believers, we've been freed and released, no longer slaves to the sin nature because our belief is in the work of Christ. So now we're to present our bodies as slaves to righteousness, and that result will be sanctification with the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ, right? So we can reproduce righteousness in our lives rather than lawlessness. 
Um, so we have, again, we have the option to choose between freedom and slavery, to get out of the prison cell and go walk with God, right? Or be stuck in the prison cell if we want. It no longer has any legal authority over us. We can, of our own free will, submit ourselves to either righteousness or slavery of sin. Um, okay, so, and then he's going to explain that. So each that whatever decision you decide to do will have a consequence, right? Good, good actions have good consequences. Bad actions have bad consequences. So whatever you choose to follow is to where the consequences are going to come. So that's what he goes into verses 20 and 22. Um, so if someone read 20 and, 20 and 21, one of the consequences of enslavement to the sin nature is in this. So read verses 20 and 21, if you would. Right. <laughs> so unbelievers, we're talking about unbelievers, they only have one option. All of the fruit that they produce is earning death, right? It, the wage that they are getting is earning death. It actually is a shame, even though we talked like last week, you might save all the cats in the world or you might help old ladies cross the street or whatever. All of that is nothing. It doesn't amount to anything to God's righteousness. But when you become a believer, Saving cats or helping old ladies across the street becomes a good work, right? Because you're doing it under the righteousness that God has attributed to you. Um, unbelievers don't, they can't choose righteousness since, since they are slaves to sin. There's no righteousness that comes from them, right? Paul, I think it was, what, what was it? Was it Acts? And they're talking about how, and then he quoted an Old Testament scripture that you know, no one is righteous, no, not even one. Their, their hearts are de desperately wicked. It's a quote from the Old Testament. But anyways, the, the idea is that um, you're not righteous. Maybe that's Romans, right? <laughs> no one is, chapter one, right? No one is righteous, right? I think it is Romans one, Romans one. And he says, um, um, you know, your heart is desperately wicked. No matter what you think you're doing, you're not doing anything good because it's desperately wicked, right? So the fruit that unrighteousness or unbelievers produce is accordance with the sin nature, has no value. Um, but however, once a person becomes a believer, this type of fruit, um, this type of fruit leads to shame, meaning that what you, you look back to your old self and see, oh my gosh, I thought I was self-righteous. I thought I was doing good, but it leads to shame, right? Because the result of anything done in the sin nature is, was leading to death. So that's why Paul is saying, why would we submit ourselves to the sin nature, having been freed from it? All it produced was shameful fruit and death. Yeah, we're following that? Okay, so verse 22 now presents the consequence of choosing to be a servant to righteousness unto sanctification. So read verse 22, if you would. Right, and so its end is eternal life. Its end is eternal life. So that's the consequence, right? That's the, we essentially reap what you sow. You're going to sow eternal life if you're acting in fruits of righteousness. You're going to sow, uh, I'm sorry, you're going to reap, 
confusing that. You're going to reap death if working under the sin nature. You're going to reap eternal life if working under the righteousness nature. Um, okay, so we submit ourselves to act only according to the new nature. Righteousness will reproduce itself, right? It continues to reproduce righteousness. That, and that's what sanctification is. It's that reproducing of righteousness in your life. Sanctification is guaranteed to us. It's just that how, how much discipline are we willing to take for the process to continue to grow and produce fruit in us, right? So that is a committed choice. So now we can understand why praying unceasingly is very valuable to us, right? Why praying to God regularly, having a, a, a regular washing of our sins, a confession of our sins, that, that connection of accessing God's grace so that righteousness will reproduce itself in our lives. That we have, it's not on our own strength, not on our own will, but it's Him coming alongside us, right? The, by, being or by being justified, you immediately have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, so you have this connection, this union with Christ, and the Holy Spirit and God the Father commune with you, right, in this little, this little fellowship, um, to where you can be a, uh, reproducing righteousness in your life. Um, verse 23, very famous verse, that concludes this chapter and it spells out uh, the general law of God's moral universe, meaning that no matter what, this is the general law uh, of, of God's moral universe that he created, the general law is this. So read verse 23 if you would. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Right. So wages, right? Mm -hmm. He used the term wages to explain the daily wages paid by the sin will ultimately lead, lead to death, right? You're earning, you've done these things and you're going to earn death. Your payment for doing these things is death. Um, of, of sin, however, eternal life, on the other hand, it's not a wage, right? It's not what you earned, it's not what you have deserved, it's something that, that can't be earned, um, it's a gift of grace, right? It's the free gift of God, and the, it's the opposite to wages. Um, so, with that, the previous verses, the first few sections of Romans, Paul spoke of the way of justification, as being through Christ. Now he speaks the sanctification is in Christ, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So after we are justified through faith in Christ, we are sanctified through faith in Christ, right? It's the same process. Your faith is continually put on Christ, in Christ, to do that work in you. Right? And so can carefully consider that every day, every moment, that yes, you're justified, but Christ is sanctifying you. It's the same faith that you would be logically convinced every day. That's how you live that overcoming life. That's how you allow righteousness to be ruler over you, right? Is re relying on the work of Christ every day, every thought, to sanctify you. You've been given the free gift of eternal life, and now, so you have this position, your goal is just to live up to that position, right? By faith in Christ. So, 
Okay, so that, that's that section. So Paul taught in chapter 6 that we don't have to sin again because our sin nature has been crucified with Christ. Our new nature has been resurrected. Now that we move into chapter 7, he's going to seem to contradict this teaching because he's going to say in that if believers try not to sin, what happens? <laughs> we still sin, right? We still sin, right? Um, however, he, chapter 8 is going to discuss that conundrum, right? The solution to that conundrum. Now he says, you don't have to sin, therefore don't. Chapter 7 is going to say, you're going to try to, but you still will. And then chapter 8 will say, well, let, here, here's how we solve that problem. Yeah? Okay, so B, the new relationship and sanctification, freedom from the law that controlled us. That's verses 1 through 25 of chapter 7. Um, so we saw in chapters 3 and 4 um, that the law of Moses showed that no one was ever justified by means of the law, right? That the law really just exposes that you need justification, right? Justification only comes through faith, and as you know, when I say justification, it's a legal term. It just declares you to be righteous, right? So justification only comes by grace through faith. What about the present aspect of our salvation now, which is sanctification? Now that we've been justified, Paul's going to say, so how, are you, how do you be sanctified, right? Does sanctification come through now that you're justified? Do you now follow the law? To make you more, excuse me, to make you more righteous by works of the law, because that was a very common thing. Was that you're saved by faith in Christ? Now you must follow the law to continue that, right? That's was the whole Judaistic perspective was we're righteous because we follow the law. Another teaching in church history was you're righteous now follow the law, right? Does that make sense? Um, and so Paul is going to try to grapple with that. Um, so believers thought following the Mosaic law would, is what would sanctify them, right? We have, we have many cults, I would call them, that do that. Um, Seventh-day Adventist, Adventist is one of them where they follow the Mosaic law. Yeah. To they, they profess that Christ is their Savior, but in order to remain, they must follow the Mosaic law, right? Um, but we're going to see in Rome, and you wonder, well, has anybody ever read Romans 7 to where, you know, it kind of gets rebutted? Um, so he's going to explain the works of the law don't produce sanctification. The believer is neither justified nor sanctified by the law. Um, and, you know, there, there, are many, there are many laws that we put on ourselves. Um, some churches will put on themselves. Um, we come. We came from um, a, a Baptist church before that was pretty legalistic, and you know they they put up these self-identifying laws on there, the way things are. And not that not that there's not value in in some of those things, but it's not a law, right? It's like we talked about before. A Jewish per you as a believer can do anything you want to do under the confines of Scripture. So if you want to observe the Sabbath because it's important to you. Observe the Sabbath. If you want to, you know, do whatever you want to do, observe these things or not observe those things, you never, but you never 
impose that on somebody else, right? If your conscience is telling you not to do this, don't do those things. If your conscience is fine with that, okay, right? Obviously within the confines of scripture, right? Okay, so the interesting thing here is that Paul is going to describe the believer's freedom from the law and his new relationship with Christ, and he uses an illustration, and he uses marriage as an illustration of this doctrine. And it will sound strange to us, but it is a universal illustration of marriage that God spans all, all uh, cultures. So, one, the believer and the law of the husband. This is going to be verses 1 through 6. Um, so, he's going to develop the doctrine of our freedom from the law by discussing the law of the husband. Um, so, verse 6, 14, if recall, says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Um, so he's going to explain how we're not under the law. Um, and so he's going to keep referring back to several concepts and terms that we already kind of went over, right? So we're going to see the term man means mankind. The term law without the law, the definite article the, refers to that principle of law. Remember in Romans 1 we talked about how there's the law and then there's, the, and then there's law, right? principle of law is what all men, all Gentiles and Jews, no matter what, are under that principle of law. The law is a Mosaic law that only the Jews are actually under, right? Um, and so the wife mentioned in this passage is she's going to stand as a representation of the believer. Um, and then the first husband, husband can be taken in two ways. He's either going to be a representative of the, of the law, um, I'm sorry, law, the principle of law in the sense of the sin nature, and then the second husband will be referred, can be referred to as Christ, the Messiah. Just a little background there. So according to verse 1, Paul's statement that the believer is not under law but under grace should not surprise anyone at this point, right? We've gone through all these things. Um, so go ahead and read verse 1 if you would. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? Okay, so it's a, con it's, it's a pretty simple, it seems complicated, but it's pretty simple. It's basically stating that law only has jurisdiction over you while you're alive, right? As long as you're alive, law only has jurisdiction over you, right? It's true of any code of law, whether it's the Mosaic law or whether it's the principle of law. It only, it only is effective to you while you're alive, right? Um, it can really only, the worst thing that law can actually do for you is take your life, right? Execution, right? That's the law. But that's it. Once that's it, it's over, right? The, the law no longer has any jurisdiction over you after death, which obviously tells you there's life after death, right? Because it just has to that point. So with that basic principle in mind, he gives an illustration in verse 2. So read verse 2. Okay, so remember, Paul is making an illustration, a the, the illustration of marriage to describe that you're dead to sin and alive to God. Okay, 
And so under the law of Moses, we know there is no provision or allowance of um, a wife to divorce her husband, right? Divorce under in Deuteronomy 24, divorce was only possible if the husband initiated the process. And it's, that still remains today in, in both under Orthodox Jewish law and Israel, in Israeli law. So that fact explains why Paul used the wife as an illustration, right? So remember, the wife is, is representing the believer, right? For the point he's trying to make, a woman could only be freed from the control of the law by death of her husband, right? The law says you as a woman cannot divorce your husband. You're still obligated to him as long as, he's still, as, as long as he is alive. But once he dies, the law doesn't ap apply to you anymore, right? That's the illustration Paul is saying. She's released from the law of the husband. Um, the law of the husband is no longer has any, has any uh, operation in her life um, the moment her husband passes away. So the, that's the original intent of marriage was and is that only death can free one from the control of spouse, right? Till death do us part, right? So only the illustration Paul is using here is just, just so only death can free one from the control of the sin nature. So the law said the woman can only divorce her husband or the woman is no longer under the law of the husband when he passes away. The same illustration Paul is saying, death can only free us from the control of the sin nature. So read verse 3. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Okay, so it is reiterating the fact that only by means of death was that wife or that, that woman freed from the original marriage contract. It says if she remarried her while her husband was still alive, then by law she was guilty of adultery. Only upon the, the death of her first husband was she free to be joined to another man and enjoy a brand new life. So now we're going to see that Paul is going to likewise make those two things the same about your life, right? Being dead to sin. Um, what was true under the Mosaic law for wives and women is now true for the believer of being of that illustration, right? The, the believer must die to the law in order to be released from its authority, right? So now read verse 4, if you would. Right, so that term likewise, right, we're seeing that connection of the content, right, that the believer's death is the same thing that Paul, he's saying. There was a law for women, and it was unlawful for them to remarry unless the husband died, but once the husband died, you, it's lawful for you to marry, right? Otherwise, you'd be a, a, an adulteress, right? Now, he's saying, likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law, right? The law, the sin nature has been, is dead, so now you're released from that, obligation. You no longer have to be under that sin nature because the law has released you. We get it? Pretty interesting illustration there. 
we better end there though. Um, but we'll we'll touch we'll come back and touch that next week also because it's it makes a lot of sense. Any any thoughts or comments or women? You have anything to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> No comments. Huh? We are touching on some of those things, though, right? On, on the, I remember we talked about circumcision only applies in the male, and here we talk about women having being under this law. There's some things we're grappling with that are contrary to our cultural understanding, for sure, in our culture, and so. Um, I would suggest to you women is to embrace that scripture in the sense of not trying to fight it with culture, but say, well, why is, what is God trying to communicate to our culture? What is it that the purpose of a woman and the purpose of, of these relationships um, in my sanctification process to be more like him, what is it that he's communicating to us? Rather than, we might, we might first find it a little appalling because it's contrary to what we've been taught, but really that's just exposing our own pagan thinking, you know, that we're, um, we've been accustomed to learn about more of what the world says rather than God says, so we better pray. Okay. Lord, we bow our hearts before you and just grateful and thankful that you do give us your word, that we would rightly understand you in the sanctification process. Lord, help us to understand some of these things we don't fully grasp and help us to really understand how pagan we think and how much of our sin nature we have, in, we have uh, built a foundation of belief. Help us to break those, that foundation. I, I take that back. The foundation has been broken, Lord. You broke that that thread of sin nature in us help us to think as though we are on a new foundation on a new likeness on a new a new body that is built on righteousness and that we are no longer under that foundation or on that that belief system of sin we are now in the belief system of righteousness lord so let us help us guide us to live up to the new position of righteousness and sanctification on a daily basis and not be uh, dependent upon our old self and our old nature. We thank you for breaking that chain. We thank you for opening the prison gate and setting us free and releasing us from the bondage of that. Lord, let us live free. Let us live in you and let us live, be free to do your work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.